0: all right good morning everyone and good morning to everyone who's joining us through our live stream we are hoping to be streaming to someone audio today we'll see how that works and my intention is to add more platforms in the next few weeks even Twitter, (laughs) they do allow us. It's one of the platforms that I can directly stream to, Instagram, and whatever other place I can find. We are hunting for the elect. (laughs) This is Berean Gospel, Berean Sovereign Grace Church in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. And my name is Pastor James. For those who do not know, we are going to go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing before we go into our text. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for allowing us to go into a word to hear the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he has done to accomplish salvation for us, his people, those called the saints, the elect, those who walk according to the Spirit. We thank you for the recording of your message from the book of Romans. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to teach me as he teaches his people the things of Christ. We honor you, glorify you, and for all things and in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Romans 8, 16 to 25, I believe. All right, so... We had some intermission, technical glitches. And we're going to go back to our message. We are in Romans 8, Romans 8, beginning at verse 16. We're going to read again Romans 8, beginning at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that. But we also who have the first, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves eagerly, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if We hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance or with patience. So that is the word of the Lord. For our title, we have three titles Unwillingly subjected to futility, unwillingly subjected to futility, or from suffering. To glory, from suffering to glory, and number three, God's purpose in man's vanity. God's purpose in man's vanity or his creation's vanity. Okay. This is what we have been learning from Romans 8. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, came and said the redeemed have a special standing with God, and that standing is that of not being under condemnation, being above condemnation, The redeemed are above condemnation. And they are not under condemnation, not because of anything that they have done, but in spite of what they have done and in spite of who they are. In other words, their non-condemnation, which is the justification, is unconditional to anything that they have done whether good or bad. It was, it was all of God's doing. And this is what God did. God put them in Christ, in the one person, in the work of the one person. And this was by a sovereign act of God that they were first united to God through Christ or united to Christ by God's gracious election. And this is what Paul means or captures in the expression, in Christ. And being in Christ makes all the difference for this group of people because non-condemnation is not true for everyone It is only true for this group of people because being in Christ has answered for each and every one of them a very particular problem. It is a sin and a righteous problem, a justification before God problem because being sinners as the rest They needed this to be answered for them in a way that satisfied God. God has to be satisfied with whatever solution may be proposed for your justification before him. If it does not satisfy him, it cannot justify you, no matter how good it may appear to us as men and women. And to this end, God sent forth His Son, Christ Jesus, the just for the unjust, to redeem them that He may justly call them righteous. He calls them righteous in another. And the Son was coming, that's the Lord Jesus. Because the law could not serve a sinner, not that God did not know that the law could not serve a sinner. God knew that the law was not given to serve a sinner. But to show the recipients of his grace that the law had nothing to help them had nothing to give to help their cause, to help their situation. And the problem with the law was because of the weakness of the sinful flesh, that the sinful flesh could not and cannot, together with the law, produce anything acceptable to God. Sin and law could only produce death. Sin and death, sorry, sin and law, married together, coupled together, only have one offspring. It is death, it is condemnation. And we do keep hammering The problem with this marriage of sin and law because people are dull of hearing. They do not get it. But this is God's formula to deal with all these issues. God's formula was to send forth his son who was made in the likeness Of sinful flesh, that he may condemn sin in the flesh. And this he did. And Paul said that he may meet the righteous requirement of the law in us. And in this condemnation of sin, we were justified. The elect whom God calls those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit are they who are justified. And walking by the Spirit first meaning they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And as a result, they walk, they order themselves in the knowledge of the redemption that is in Christ. They walk under the conviction and persuasion that the Holy Spirit makes about Christ. So walking by the Spirit is a walking of those whom God has made complete and accepted in Christ. So in other words, it is a walk of faith, of trusting God's testimony about his son and everything that God has purposed and united to Christ. God has united everything everything to his son. And walking according to the flesh, in contrast, is a walking that looks away from the son to the person, to the doing of the sinner, especially as they try to use their law obedience as the basis of establishing their relationship and righteousness with God and this due to ignorance. And Paul says, this is the way of death. This is the way of the law of sin and death. But the elect are not under this law. They do not report to it. They are not under its dominion and they are not married to it that marriage was dissolved by the death of Christ. It was amicably dissolved. It was dissolved on righteous grounds. That is the only way that that marriage could be dissolved for you in a manner that is acceptable to God. And that only by the death of Christ. And that is the argument of Romans 7 opening statement that we died to the law through the death of Christ. So we have been set free by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We have been set free. So the gospel declares to the believer that they have been set free from the dominion of the law of sin and death. They do not answer to it. They are justified from all their sins that this law of sin and death would have condemned them for. We have been justified. We are beyond reproach. But those whom God has justified, he also gives his spirit in his appointed time. The spirit who is called the spirit of God and also the spirit of Christ, who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of God, is the spirit of Christ. The spirit who sets apart by possession sanctifies by possession and the giving of the truth. We have been sanctified by the blood of Christ and we have been sanctified, set aside as God's creation by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God is marking possession of us to say, She is mine. Thus, I give them the Holy Spirit to that end. And this Spirit of Christ has a work to do in the bringing of the redeemed to God. He has a ministry to come and indwell those that are the justified. He goes out looking for them. The Holy Spirit knows to find those that Christ redeemed. He knows their names. He knows everything about them. He finds them even in the bars. (laughs) He knows where to get them. And it is important for us to understand the flaw of God's arguments. The Holy Spirit does not justify sinners. He does not come to justify sinners. Christ alone is the basis of justification of a sinner. The Holy Spirit declares to the elect, the redeemed, their justification in Christ. He brings the message of their justification, He does not cause their justification. He points them to the crucified and resurrected Christ and what that means, which is their peace and total reconciliation to God. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer. The Holy Spirit comes and gives a different mind to the redeemed. He gives us a different mind that we did not have before. He gives us eyes To see spiritual things that we did not see before. Did not believe before. Because left to ourselves, we would have remained carnal in our way of thinking just like the rest. Thinking that the whole world revolved around us. But the Holy Spirit quickens them. He gives them spiritual life So that they may begin to descend, to receive, to see the invisible things, because the matter that Christ was revealed to accomplish respects invisible things, the things of above, the things of Christ as God has revealed them in the gospel. So the redeemed are not in the flesh by reason of Holy Spirit possession, not by reason of improved morality or progress thereof. Because they still commit some of the sins that those who walk in the flesh commit. They do. The difference is that God does not impute their sins to them. So the Holy Spirit was given to mark possession of what belongs to God, what belongs to Christ. And that means Holy Spirit possession is the most definitive sign of one's salvation. And the most definitive work of that Holy Spirit to essena is revealing Christ to them through faith and repentance. And a lot of people in the church, they minimize this. They think this is not good enough unless you add some other things. They don't realize that it is impossible to come to the knowledge of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, if this Christ is in the sinner, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness, alive because of the righteousness of Christ imputed. All the redeemed in Christ who experience physical death at some point, but they have already been made alive to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, Paul says, the God who raised Christ from the dead will also raise you to life by the same Spirit. And that tells us that the Holy Spirit is the power of God in the resurrection God, the Father, and the Son work through the Holy Spirit to exert their power in the resurrection of the redeemed. So the Holy Spirit indwelling is God's guarantee to you and me and every believer of our future bodily resurrection, which is glorification. And every spring, we experience the work of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. Because in the fall, all the leaves die and they fall off. That's a picture of the death of Christ. And in the spring, we get the leaves back growing, new plant life. That's the picture of the resurrection. That is the picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says the redeemed and debtors are debtors to the law. Sorry, let me repeat that. He says the redeemed are debtors not to the law, not to the flesh, but to grace. We are debtors to Christ. We are debtors to the cross because we all are standing before God to the cross. We do not owe our standing to God, to the law. So we are not debtors to the law. We do not live according to the flesh. In other words, we do not try to remove the wrinkles of our clothes with Moses. Our clothes have no need of ironing with Moses because they have no wrinkles in them. They have no blemish nor spot in them. That's Paul's teaching that we are above reproach and there's no spot or blemish. And therefore, we cannot go back to the law to try and straighten our wrinkles because before God we have none. Our clothes have no need of Moses because they are perfect, holy and righteous garments in Christ. That's not how we roll. (laughs) So we do not live according to the fear to the terror of Mount Sinai which many are making very approachable. They say, oh, the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. That's making Mount Sinai approachable, which it is not. Jesus did not make the law so cheap that you can buy it on discount at the dollar store (laughs) with coupons. Give me some coupons. I brought some coupons to discount the law and make it doable for me. Mount Sinai remains Mount Sinai. It is a place of terror, it is a place of darkness and gloom and death. Living according to the flesh always brings terror. Ask Moses when he was at Mount Sinai, ask Israel when they experienced it on Mount Sinai. So living according to the flesh is a category of what one thinks recommends them to God for life and righteousness, which is not God's grace. Whatever it is that people think recommends them to God, which is not God's grace, which is not Christ alone, that's living according to the flesh, no matter how righteous they may appear. So flesh and law are related. They go under the same category. You could say they're almost synonyms. They imply the same thing. Because they produce the same outcome. Death. They produce the same outcome. So the deeds of the body are fundamentally human works of righteousness to please God. And these can only be put to death by the gospel. The law elicits and gives power to all kinds of negative patterns of behavior in sinners. Paul taught that in Romans that when the law came, my sin, which was in hibernation, (laughs) was given power. And I began to covet even a whole lot more things. Evil desire. So only the Spirit through Christ gives power, overcomes the flesh and all its thinking. In other words, only the gospel kills self righteousness and all the side effects that it brings. Only the gospel puts to death the works of the law and its condemnation because the gospel takes away power from sin, law, death, and condemnation. Only the gospel takes away power from sin because Christ was sinless From the law, Christ became a curse for us. He removed the curse. From death, he overcame death by his resurrection. From condemnation, he is our justification. So the redeemed have been given the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of bondage. The spirit of bondage has to be in reference to the law. Because the law is the ministry of bondage. It is the ministry of slavery. It is the ministry of fear. One who lives under fear is living in bondage. But we have been given the ministry of liberty, the spirit of our adoption as sons. In other words, the Holy Spirit confirms our sonship to God through Christ. John 1, 10 to 13. John 1, 10 to 13. John says, he was in the world speaking to Christ. And the world was mad through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, speaking to the Jews. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So you see, The title of being a child of God is related to faith and not to moral improvement, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God started the paperwork of our adoption by election. And we know that there's no adopted child who ever chooses their adoption parents. Thus, it stands to reason that election was by grace alone. There's no child who chooses their parents. And thus, election has to be And can only be by grace, Allah. Unconditional, in other words. So Christ came to redeem us that we may be made sons of God. That we may receive the adoption of sons. That's Galatians 4, verse 5 to 7. That we may be born anew to God by the birth pangs of his cross. To be born anew means to have our legal standing changed from our standing in Adam because sin, death, and condemnation came by Adam. So Christ came that we may be translated from Adam. We had to pass through Adam. We cannot avoid Adam. And the evidence of that is that we all sin and die. And that was part of the unfolding of God's purpose in Christ. do If we remove Adam from the conversation... then we cannot get Christ Jesus right. If we remove Adam from the conversation, we cannot get Christ Jesus right. And we cannot get Adam right also if we do not get Jesus right. The two interpret each other. But Christ is the lens through whom we interpret Adam. Jesus is He who interprets Adam for us and His necessity. Christ Jesus is He through whom we interpret everything. Everything. Nothing can be understood apart from Christ Jesus. So he was revealed, Jesus Christ was revealed, that we may receive, the elect that is, that we may receive and be joined to our true and new identity, the identity that God always purposed for us to have. Our true identity was to be in Christ. Christ. We were never to be conformed to the image of the first Adam. God's predestination and election was for our confirmation to the image of Christ. Christ Jesus is he who accomplished that adoption for us to God. By changing our legal relationship to sin and law and therefore to God, He made us children, sons, and not servants or slaves, and gave us the right of inheritance by His. Redemption, setting us free from that which held us, sin and law, and what came with them. Those things would have made us ineligible for the redemption, sorry, for the inheritance that is in Christ. So the right of inheritance is a legal matter, It is for those who are in the bloodline of the Father. And in Christ Jesus and his blood, we have been made into the bloodline of God. We now have the blood of the Son by reason of redemption by that blood and thus have been qualified to be called sons and heirs. We smell the same way to God as Christ Jesus. You know the message that we've done on Jacob and Esau. It's a good message. It's one of Sean's all-time favorites. (laughs) So, the Holy Spirit is later dispatched to bring testimony of our adoption and causes us, He creates a testimony in us to call God our Father, Abba. He witnesses to us that we are truly the children of God, but He does not give that witness apart from adjoining us to the gospel of Christ. That's anyone who denies or despises the gospel does not belong to God or they are yet to be brought to the true knowledge of their standing in Christ if they are elect and God will see to it. So the elect are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We're actually going down Romans 8. (laughs) The elect are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Christ Jesus is God's firstborn, heirs and heir, and that by reason of preeminence, not by reason of creation, Jesus does not share his birthday with the devil. Jesus met the devil. <laughs> Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God from the beginning with no birth certificate. When it comes to his true origin, he is from forever. The Word made flesh with no beginning. The Alpha and the Omega. That's Christ Jesus. And this Christ is the object of God's love, the object of the Godhead's love. And He is the revelation. And the expression of God's love, and that is why all things were given to him. Jesus said in John, the father loves the son. Thus he has given all things to him, including judgment and the giving of life. Judgment and the giving of life are Prerogatives of God alone, and that tells you that Jesus is God. So the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit loves the Son and the Father. He is the Spirit of love. The Father loves Himself, the Son loves Himself. And the Holy Spirit also loves himself. And when God blesses himself, he blesses through the son. When God worships his own perfection, which is the worshiping of himself, he does it through the son. The whole creation is the work of God to worship his own perfection and his own power. Because beauty demands recognition. Beauty demands recognition. But the whole creation, God means to say, look at me how good and glorious i am now worship me <laughs> extol of me of my beauty of my power in what i have done ascribe to me power and glory holiness and righteousness In science, when there is some wonderful, wonderful discovery by a scientist, they give them the Nobel Prize. That's glory. They're honoring them for their abilities. And God says, I have made all things that I may honor myself for who I am. So the whole creation is a sermon About the glory of God through the Son, it is the Sermon on Christ, about Christ. Only God can render the kind of worship that is recognition of self, that is befitting him. Only God can give worship, which is recognition of his perfection. Only he can do that. To worship is to pay homage. We are going somewhere. We are digging deep. We are going somewhere. We are building somewhere. If you want to take down a big tree, you have to start digging very far out. That's where we are going. To worship is to pay homage. It is to show recognition to the worthiness of another. But for God, he can only pay homage to himself because there's nothing better than himself. There's nothing better than him There's no one higher than him. And that is why you have all these beauty pageants. You have Miss Ward, Miss America, Miss Ohio. That is a worship of self. It is a worship of beauty and a recognition of it. And in the worship of beauty, you see that beautiful people naturally also have power. Doesn't matter how ignorant they are. (laughs) They have power because of their beauty. And this did not begin with sinners. God is in the business of worshiping himself. In other words, of ascribing glory to that which alone is worthy, which is himself. And so now taking that to the matter of salvation. Salvation is not because God desperately needs company in heaven. It is not because he feels so bad for the condition that men and women are in. That's not the driving force of things. In salvation, he is showcasing He is putting on display his glory as Jesus even prayed in John 17, 24. John 17, 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold My glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, that's my prayer. My prayer is not for them to just come to heaven. I want them to see how good I am. (laughs) how cool I am. So, with that, if a creature worships themselves, God calls it pride. But when he does it, he calls it glory. And says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me, that we should be alike. That's Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me? The expected answer is to no one, because none compares, and that was a, or is a rhetorical question. To whom will you liken me? who is equal to me, or who even comes close to who I am. So in this matter of his glory, he had made some to become children, but the children and sons are they who are also joined to the suffering with Christ, that they may be glorified with him. And that means suffering is part of the package and design of the road to glory. The son suffered because of our sin, and we also suffer because of sin, but not to make payment for it, but to share in the suffering of Christ that we may have a sense of the birth pangs of the Lord, what he went through as he gave birth to us. We do not get to experience the fullness of his suffering. We experience a little bit of his suffering. We share in his suffering because there's no sinner who is able to suffer has to make payment for their own sin because if they could, then they must be worshipped. Even by God Himself. God has to come and say, Oh, Paul, I did not realize you were almost all just like me. <laughs> that will not work, it's impossible. Paul says, verse 18 of Romans. Eight. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So Paul is now transitioning from the believers standing and working a teaching that would give the believers of the understanding of why they suffer even though God loves them. Why they suffer even though Christ has redeemed them. And this is a question that is anticipated and answered a lot in the New Testament teaching by Jesus himself. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I say to you, John 15, 20. The servant is not greater than his Lord or his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So we're going to go through a number of verses, just to show you that this is very pervasive teaching in the New Testament: the suffering of the redeemed of the Lord, and the reason for it. Let's go to Colossians one, Colossians 1, 24 to twenty-seven. Colossians 1, 24 to 27, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul was not saying the suffering of Christ was lacking or insufficient for our redemption. He's just talking about his own suffering in the context of the body of Christ. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God willed to make known the riches of the glory, of his glory, of the mystery that is Christ Jesus and his salvation. Timothy 1, 2 Timothy, sorry, second Timothy 3 10 to 12. 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12. Paul says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions. Afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. He was delivered from all of them. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, essentially those who continue to hold to the truth of the God. Was that true godliness? Remaining steadfast in the truth of Christ. You remain steadfast in the truth of Christ and just see how many people will love you. First Peter 4, twelve to sixteen. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you, do not be surprised when you go into trials. It's not a strange thing. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, you see, our sufferings are a partaking of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Verse 14: if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of the glory, sorry, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Christ is glorified, glorified when we stand for him and speak his truth, no matter who is opposing it. But then Paul says, but Lord, but uh, that's Peter, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. Don't go about killing people. <laughs> Don't go about stealing a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. (laughs) Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. If you are suffering for the sake of telling the truth of Christ, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Okay? Okay. So that is suffering, that is not exhaustive of the New Testament teaching on the matter, but the point is, suffering is also adjoined to our testimony of Christ. That the Lord has been very kind to not give us over to a lot of suffering. But related to this is the question that has been asked, I believe, since the creation. And continues to be a stumbling block to a lot of people as to the matter of the existence of God. They say, if God is good, if God exists and is good, then why does evil exist? a good question. The problem is the majority of preachers, even those who claim themselves to be reformed, they cannot answer this to God's glory. They always find a way to remove the offense, to clean up God, to make him more acceptable. But I believe Paul is going to answer that for us, And it is not an answer unbelievers or even some who claim to be Christians are able to handle. He says the sufferings, the sorrows of this present life for the redeemed are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, we are going, whatever we are going through, is not even a drop in the ocean in the matter of suffering compared to the glory that God shall reveal to us in our glorification. And the point of that is that this is supposed to change Our view of life's struggles. This is supposed to be our fuel to help balance or keep our ships afloat when we think we are being battered by the storms of life and we feel like we are sinking under the weight of the pressures of this life especially as those who name Christ Paul says in second corinthians I don't know what chapter this was but this is what he says wherever i got it from it begins at verse 16 <laughs> I think it may be 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, But the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So our suffering, Paul and Peter says, should be expected. Even Jesus said that. It should be expected. But it is a light affliction, and it is for a moment as far as its duration But it is also working, which means God is behind it. If it is working something positive, God is behind it. But it is also working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Only God knows what that means. But that's what he says. In other words, the point is, the suffering is not mindless on the part of God. And it is not punitive. In other words, God is not extracting justice from you because of your sin and that through your suffering. He's not trying to extract anything from you by way of payment of anything. So the suffering of the redeemed is and should be as they look at they contemplate or are contemplating the invisible things, the eternal things, because all the visible things are temporary and therefore are perishing and therefore not important. So suffering is not because of God's displeasure with a person necessarily, surely not for the redeemed. God is not punishing the redeemed; He is not punishing them for their sin, because if He were to do that, you're going to hell. Okay, so let's go back to Romans eight, verse nineteen. These are buried messages. We do not preach ever to just finish a message. <laughs> we preach to bring content and connect things so that things make sense. Verse 19, Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation eagerly awaits with anticipation, with much expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. But why is the whole creation waiting this way, as if in Limbo, verse 20? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Question. Who is the him who is the referent? Who is the Him? Who subjected the creation to fertility? The New English translation supplies the assumed person and says this is what the NET says For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. In hope. So God is He who subjected His creation to futility, to frustration. The Greek word that is translated as futility or vanity also means this according to the NET Bible. It means. What is devoid of truth and appropriateness? What is devoid of truth and appropriateness? Number two, perverseness or depravity. Perverseness or depravity. Number three, frailty, that's weakness, or want of vigor or want of power. It also means purposelessness. Purposelessness. And it implies a change and decay that is in all created things that are not yet glorified. But this is where we want to develop this thing see that it is not man who subjected himself to vanity. It was not a voluntary subjection. It was imposed on the creation. And it is not the devil who subjected man to vanity either. Neither man nor the devil have power to subject God's creation to vanity and depravity, they have no such power. God alone has power to do it. He purposed to do it. He wanted to do it. And he was pleased to do it. And he did it. But how did he subject his creation to vanity? It could only be through sin. So the events of the Garden of Eden were not the devil's plan. It was God's work. It was was God working and bringing about vanity and futility and depravity and frustration in his own creation. That's great teaching from Paul, (laughs) though unpopular. And this is shocking news to many professing Christians because they have never seen Romans 8 verse 20 as to understand it and its implication in the larger discussion of God's purpose in Christ. So many are busy trying to deny this truth, saying this would make God the author of sin and evil which in our text is implied by depravity by futility by purposelessness by vanity god is he who caused the vanity that is in his creation so a lot of these people they have a false understanding of god they do not believe in the god of the bible They only read what they want to agree with so as to remove the offense. They want a God who is agreeable with their way of thinking. But what does verse 20 say again, Romans 8? Let us read that for those who did not hear it. (laughs) For the creation was subjected to futility. It was acted upon. Not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. The creation was subjected to futility, but the creation could not have resisted and said, no, we do not want to. Leave us alone. Leave me alone. We are going to exercise the power of our free will because we do not want God to be called the author of sin, or the author of evil. We do not want that. So we're gonna do it by ourselves so that we would be blamed. So that Paul would come and say, the creation subjected itself to vanity. It doesn't say it's that. God is the one who subjected his creation. God caused his creation to submit to his control to the futility, to the vanity, exactly to the degree that he determined. And this is what it means. Sin has power over us because that is how God determined it to work. The text says the creation was subjected not willingly but unwillingly. Thus, this was not the determination by Adam, nor the devil, as I said. God's power and will are irresistible. And there's nothing that one can do to deliver themselves from this God-imposed vanity and frustration. And that's God's point. That is why Paul came in Romans 2 or 3, where he said, Both Jew and Gentile are under sin. God has imprisoned everyone. The law was given to shut up everyone so that they do not boast. Why? Because of sin. So this subjection to vanity brought the suffering and this suffering was a necessary ingredient to the glorification of Christ and of those appointed to eternal life. So God is the ultimate power behind the creation's vanity, its suffering, and then its redemption and glorification. He must demonstrate his power in all these matters. God does not just show up to redeem as He is presented in the majority of what passes for gospel or God's truth in a lot of places. God is only presented as coming to recover a situation that happened that he had no part in. That is a very pedestrian understanding of the whole matter. It's GABA baby food. <laughs> for those who are babes. God subjected his creation to vanity to prove a point. The sinners have no natural right to things that alone belong to him. So when Adam was made good, it wasn't saying Adam was made righteous. He was good, for the purpose for which he was made that is the vanity that he was to bring to all who were in him sinners must know that they are sinners that they may know who god is sinners must know that if they should be saved it must be to the praise of God's glorious grace alone. God alone stands eternally in righteousness. God alone stands eternally in righteousness. We came under vanity. Christ never came under vanity because he was always righteous from the beginning. The sinner, on the other hand, must be brought to a state of righteousness after God has taken them through the vanity. For the sinner, there must be dust before glory to the praise of God's glorious grace. Ephesians 1, to 3-7. Ephesians 1, 3-7. Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight in love. Verse 4 is used by people for progressive sanctification. This is not talking about sanctification. It's talking about justification. It is telling us God's reason for choosing us, that we may be holy to him, separate to him, and unblemished, which means with the perfection of Christ. Our justification in Christ, it's not talking about your life. Your sanctification, as in progressive sanctification, that's not what this is talking about. Verse 1 and 5, he did this by predestining us to adoption as his sons through Christ Jesus according to the pleasure of his will, or according to his good pleasure, according to his sovereign pleasure, uncoerced pleasure, and the reason to the praise of the glory of his grace. So he did all these things that he may be praised for his grace. That he has freely, see, freely, bestowed on us in his dearly beloved son. The grace is tied to the son because grace and truth came by the son. In him, that is the son, we have redemption. We have been set free. Redemption means to set free by way of payment of a price. And that price is his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood, you could say. In him we have justification. Through his blood, because justification is a setting free from condemnation. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses According to the riches of his grace, forgiveness of our trespasses in the blood, not in our believing or at our time of believing is in the shedding of blood. So there's no praise of God's grace for one who was never in Adam This is why Adam is important and cannot be sidestepped in our understanding of the moving paths of the gospel. Jesus was never in Adam and thus could not praise God for his grace, his salvation. Jesus was never a sinner. Jesus never needed salvation for himself to make things right for him with God because he was never part of the creation that was subjected to vanity. But we were unwillingly subjected to vanity by God. And one will say on hearing this, I'm going to have to ask my pastor about this. (laughs) Who is this guy who is talking like this? (laughs) Why then does he still find fault? That's the natural question. If God has caused all these things, and Romans 9 will answer the same objection in the matter of election by grace, because this is the same level of arguments. And they have the one answer, same answer. Who are you? <laughs> you yeah, have the clay, and he's a porter, and he has the right, he has the freedom to do with his clay whatever he wants to fashion all kinds of vessels, some for honor and others for dishonor. But there's something that is in the text of Romans 8.20, at the end of that verse, it says in hope. In other words, the subjection of the creation to vanity was not a mindless exercise. It had a purpose. It was purposeful, it was to a particular end. It was in hope of deliverance from that vanity. And what was God's hope? In other words, what was God's intention? Verse 21. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. (laughs) So if the creation got into the bondage of corruption, If God who brought it into the bondage of corruption. (laughs) Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation was put into corruption by God. They had nothing to do with it. And so also, they have nothing to do with their redemption from it. It's God who is working all this. He is the one doing it. The creation, all of it, will be delivered from its bondage of corruption. The corruption and frustration that God subjected it, according to verse 20, and be delivered into the glorious liberty of the sons of God or the children of God, and what this means is that all of creation's misery was tied to the sin that came by way of Adam. See that? Sin comes through the one man and the corruption through the one man and the corruption of all of God's creation through the sin of the one man. So it's tied to the first as the redemption of all of God's people and glory is tied to the other one man, that is Christ Jesus. God is doing this with an eye on Christ. The creation will be delivered from its bondage into God's second creation, because this is the old creation in Adam it will be delivered into the liberty of God's second creation that he has put his children. And that liberty, as I said, is linked to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the ordering is the redemption of the children first, then followed by the redemption of the larger creation. It's going to be redeemed. There won't be any poison ivy in the new creation. (laughs) I hate that poison everything. Verse 22. We're almost getting to the end of our text for scriptures for today. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. And that means the whole creation is suffering. If you could hear it cry, everything is mourning. The phenomena in the physical world that you see are groans and labors of something that is pregnant, because that language is language of pregnancy, groaning and laboring, of something that will give birth to something at some point. The earthquakes, the natural disasters, the hurricanes, the decay of things, the sickness, the frustration of this mind and the body, the dying of things, those are groans and labors. And this Groaning and laboring is not just in the creation, in the natural creation, but also in this verse 23. Not only that, but we all we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So even us who are the redeemed, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, as in having the first harvest in the time of Paul as his writing, as the early Christians, we also groan within ourselves. my shoulder, this, my knee, this, my stomach, this, I eat this, doesn't work. This, this, eat this, I have nausea. Just pop in this pill and you're itchy, you have a headache and groaning, labors. And that also means to say, Having the Holy Spirit does not remove one's labors and groans. Does not remove one's afflictions with the things of this life. It does not make for your best life now. (laughs) But all the redeemed eagerly wait for the adoption because they know something about it. They know that something good is coming. The redemption of the body... The setting free of the body from the vanity to which God subjected it through sin and depravity, here and now is to experiencing the vanity and the corruption of this body. And it has not been redeemed from that corruption yet. The sin that came because of that corruption has been paid for, but this body is yet to be corrected that it may be in line with the righteousness that God has given. It is yet to be corrected. And that's why we experience. That's why we are laboring and groaning in pain and frustration. And also that tells you that the resurrection has not yet happened. As some call, they call, they say, oh, the resurrection came, Jesus already came. No, Jesus has not yet come because this is yet to be fulfilled. We're still groaning and laboring. But when Christ comes, we're going to experience the resurrection of the body and its glorification. And this will bring to the final clause or closure of this whole redemption thing. So we see the movement of the adoption process here. God began the process of our adoption by election according to grace. That's where it began. Then, adopted and made us children and sons by the redemption that is in Christ, and then by the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is called the Spirit of Adoption. That's what Paul says in Romans 8 the Spirit of Adoption. And then the completion of the process of that adoption is in glorification, in the resurrection. So election opens the bracket for us, and glorification closes the brackets. So all the redeemed eagerly await this final redemption, the remaking of our bodies, the removal of the vanity, the frustration, And being finally conformed to the image and body of Christ Jesus, who is the new creation in holiness and righteousness. We are going to be changed, conformed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It's going to be an instantaneous change. It's not progressive glorification. So it could not be through progressive sanctification. It's going to happen one time. Okay? Verse 24. And that means we have one more verse to go. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Or how does one hope for something that they already have in their possession? So, all the elect were saved in this hope of our final redemption. But there is another dimension to this matter of hope, of in hope. There is another dimension. Because Paul has said, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Served in hope. So the hope there also is in reference to Christ. Hebrews 7.19. Hebrews 7.19. For the Lord made nothing perfect. On the other hand, There is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And if you read the next verse and the one after that, it clearly tells you what that better hope is. It's Christ Jesus. It's Christ Jesus who is the better and forever priest and guarantee of a better covenant. So we were saved in this hope in Christ. The Christ whom we do not see with our physical eyes. Because that would undo the matter of faith. For why does one still hope for what he sees? God wants us to continue in faith. We cannot hope for something. You can't hope to buy a car that you already have. We would not be looking forward to seeing Jesus, looking forward to the day of our final redemption, which is our final wedding. You can take this also in the context of having a wedding. The bride and the bridegroom They both are looking forward to the day of their wedding. So they have their date set. It could be in the spring or the summer or the fall. But everything that they're doing, they're doing with that date in mind. That's what they're thinking to do. And that's essentially what that is saying. We're looking with hope to the day of our final redemption and wedding to Christ. God subjected all things to vanity that we may wait for the day of our glorification. It was for a bigger cause. The sin was for a bigger cause. It was for our ultimate glorification in Christ and not in Adam. You see, when people talk sin and depravity, where they stumble is because their thinking is very shallow. They stop too early in the investigation of the revelation of God's purpose. They get too fixated at sin because they hate their sin and it's frustrating that they have nothing that they can do. But if they would, by God's grace, be given the eyes to see the progression of revelation, they would see that this was the only way. And God is saying, we must respect his process. He has a process. God is not changing his mind, but he has a process to take us to the end. He has his timelines. And that's why the New Testament says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth. He has his way of doing things. And it shall all come to pass, and nothing will fail. Because he said, my purpose will stand. I will accomplish, I will do all my good pleasure. That's Isaiah 46. Verse 25 is our last verse from Romans 8. Romans eight twenty-five. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience or with perseverance. God wants us to wait. He wants us to be patient. Because that's one of God's attributes. He's long-suffering. He makes us wait by not glorifying us immediately by not giving us the things that we want right away. He has a time that is set for that to happen. But as we wait, he says there's going to be some suffering to go through. It is part of the package of being in Christ, so do not be surprised. But he says this for our encouragement for the strengthening of our faith to keep with the surgeon. It is for us to endure because we have a sense of how the game ends. We have a sense of the end game. We have a sense of God's eternal mind as he has revealed it. And this exhortation also Paul has said in a different way in Romans 5. I want you to see the progression of the arguments. In Romans 8, Paul has begun the argument with justification and why and how we were justified. And then he begins to work away things down to us, to our particular experience as those who profess Christ. And everything is driven by the fact that you are justified. Okay? And you say the same thing in Romans 5. Let's read verses 1 to 5 and see the same way that the argument was crafted. Paul says, therefore, having been justified. You can put a comma, having been justified. Then by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, so we've been justified. But now to our experience of that justification in our lives, we also glory in tribulations. So now we have a different sense of how to deal with our tribulations because we are justified. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, which is, Exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8. At the end of it, he says perseverance, patience. And perseverance, character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So God is saying glory in suffering, glory in momentary afflictions, glory in tribulations glory in the frustrations of this life, even because they are justified. Those things have nothing on your justification. It is ultimately for your good. Your vanity was for something very good, as Paul would say, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Sin was for your good, and was not by accident, and was not of the will of man, nor of the devil, but of God. He purposed it for his glory. It was the outworking of his purpose in Christ, which was your ultimate glory, your salvation. Amen. We are done. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful things that you've spoken to us through the scriptures, the testimony of your sovereign power and decree to bring about futility and vanity into your creation, but with the end of redeeming it, in Christ and to your glory and to the glory of the saints we pray that you grant your people understanding of these wonderful things these mysteries that were hidden but they have now been made known by the spirit we thank you for these who gathered to hear the message cause them to come back and hear again all these wonderful eternal truths we honor you for the days ahead of us we pray for your blessing and strength in every way, for the testimony of Christ to be increased in us. We pray for help in every way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. You have a wonderful week. If you are new to our teaching, you can look for our teaching on sermon Audio, Bury and Sovereign Grace Church, or you can go to our YouTube channel, Berea and Sovereign Grace. You can look for me on Facebook, James Guyo. All right, God bless.